Thank you for encouraging our hearts in song this morning. Amen. Great new hymn to, to sing and to learn. Some great doctrine there. It's always great when you sing a new song to be able to have a bunch of Bible verses flooding through your mind and your heart that you could attach each phrase to. And um, one that flooded in my mind was 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, the one phrase was there, correct me if I'm wrong, um, all is grace, all, what's the phrase been? Don't worry about it. Did you get that last phrase before the chorus? All I am is grace or all we are is grace? All I know is grace. That was it. All I know is grace. And that's it. That has a lot to do with our sermon this morning. So let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I thought I saw a Brant, a Seth and, or Stephanie Brant here. Am I mistaken? There you, Seth and Stephanie. Hi. Are you sitting together? Are there people between you? Karen, is that you in between them? <laughs> Anyways, great to see you guys. I hope you can give me a hug after church. Thanks for taking care of my kid in Georgia. He's loving it down there. Oh, that's awesome. And his wife. That is so weird to say. I got a kid that's got a wife. I got two kids that have wives. <laughs> As Mark and I were talking these transition to life, we, we described when one word and after, before Sunday school, they're weird. <laughs> Good weird, right? Good weird. All I can remember is Micah was Houdini and breaking out of the nursery as a kid. Do you remember that? I think it, he took upon himself a, a personal challenge at two, three, four, five years old to, to outwit any nursery worker. And uh, he would break out of the nursery and they wouldn't even know. And he'd, I'd, I'd be preaching, and that door, back door would just fly wide, wide open. And Micah would just bolt up the aisle, and he'd come stand right here. Do you remember? And people didn't know how to handle that. I didn't know how to handle that. All these things are running through my head. Like, everyone's going to think I'm a horrible parent, and my kid's way out of control, and I don't discipline my kid. When 99% of the people thought, I think it was just cute. And uh, he just wanted to see his dad, I guess. So I'd pick him up, didn't know what to do, give him a hug, and wait for some nursery worker to appear, realize that they had lost a kid. Back to the nursery he goes, and about a week later, he's married. It's so weird. So even today, you know, I'm giving the challenge at their wedding ceremony a couple weeks ago, and I had to fight back laughing because that's all I was picturing when I was doing their challenge was Micah running up the aisle, this scrawny little blonde-haired, blue-eyed kid. Anyways, that's not what we're here for. Great to see you, Brands. Thanks for taking care of him. Micah's worshiping and fellowshipping with them in Atlanta while he's in his, whatever he's in these days, um, in his career. Let's pray. We need help this morning. Father in heaven, we we cry out to you, and we certainly are what we are fully by the grace of Christ. A wonderful hymn to prepare our hearts for the text that's before us on this Lord's Day. We pray that it would be heard according to as it was inspired and explained to the original hearers.
the Spirit of God would take the message by his omnipotent ability, illuminating ability, and apply it to our hearts as individuals and then to our church family as a whole. We admit complete dependence upon you. Anytime we approach the study of your word in person or together as a church family, thank you for the help and the spiritual aid that you'll give us by grace. In Jesus' name, amen. I, I just want to preface this morning's message by this, and this is primarily for our guests who are here today. Every year at Grace, we try to cover one Bible book a year. Sometimes if it's shorter, we have the opportunity to go through two. I don't think I've ever gone through more than two in the last 15 years. Um, so that's what we're doing. We're going through Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, okay? Uh, we're in chapter 8. Chapter 8 and 9 compile or com comprise the second part of this second letter of Paul to the Corinthian church a long time ago. first section obviously being chapters one through seven the second section is a section that really describes how the grace of god develops a christian's heart and their personal responsibility to use their resources to care for the flock and to promote the gospel of jesus christ if you're a guest this morning or you're joining us by live stream and, and you hear the summary of these two chapters as given to us in the second part of this book, uh, you could be saying in your mind right now, oh, wow, this is just another one of those churches and all they're going to do is preach on giving. Well, that's why I started with the context of what we do every year. And this is just where we happen to be in the second portion of this second letter to the Corinthians and it's not just a message on giving. Uh, I haven't preached on the topic of giving in 15 years. A lot of people ask me to preach on it more. I really don't have a need to do so unless the text of Scripture we're preaching through addresses it. Right? And this text does. But it's really about the care for the flock and the promotion of the gospel. Many of you may come from ministries where you lost trust in the leadership because their goal for God's resources was not the care for the flock and the promotion of the gospel. And when it's not for those two things, the way pastoral leadership um, speaks on giving can become a lot of really smoke and mirrors and very gimmicky. People lose trust in their leadership when the plea for giving is out of context, out of expositional flow, and when it's not motivated by caring for the flock and the spread of the gospel. Okay? But we're into, uh, a significant way into this first of two chapters of the second portion of the second letter on the topic of giving. If you want to go back and find out what the Bible taught us in verses 1 through 6, I'd encourage you to do that. There's a lot in there. 
There's a lot in there. Way too much for me to review this morning. Uh, but we're going to start with verse 7. And we're going to just talk about the position. The position of the believer who's grown by grace. Their overall life position. Because there's going to be a number of virtues discussed here in verse 7 among which giving is the last. And there's something that the Apostle Paul is trying to teach us here, that the Macedonian believers were modeling for the Corinthian believers, and therefore for us, on the nature of what biblical New Testament giving is for the care of God's people and the promotion of the gospel. Okay? Verse 7. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and in utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. We are going to get into verse 8, just the beginning of it. As a matter of fact, the first phrase because at the end of speaking on this first phrase, we're going to stop and we're going to go back to what we promised you two weeks ago and we're going to discuss what are the obligations for the believer, both Old and New Testament, in relationship to giving. But he says here, I am not speaking this as a command. And we'll stop right there. Um, We'll get back into it the end of this morning or the next time we're together. First line of verse 7. But just as you abound in, what does it say? Everything. In everything. He's commending the Corinthian believers here. Remember, they had gotten the tough letter, they responded to it well, and now they're growing in grace. They're overcoming their failure that they had fallen prey to by the falsehood that was from within, and they're growing in grace again. Second letter, Paul's writing to a church that's regaining its standing and its spiritual health. Okay. And they're doing well. And he tells them that here. But he still brings up the Macedonian church as this example model church in relationship to giving that the Corinthians had not grown back to yet. We highlighted several weeks ago that they had begun this collection of this offering for the church in Jerusalem that was a hurting church wanted to help the church and promote the gospel from that first of all churches in Acts chapter 2 they had started but they had set it aside because of the influence of unbelief and Paul saying look look at the Macedonian church now we're going to pick up this giving again but he says here you know what I'm going to compliment you and then prove a point to you through that compliment You are abounding in everything. You're growing. All that we are has been developed. All that you are has been developed by the grace of God. Amen. And all these opportunities, obligations, responsibilities that are right here in verse number 7 are equal in this sense. God's grace is developing each of these in our life equally 
Remember, but grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace just grows the believer. And it grows the believer unto every spiritual virtue. So really, there's nothing that we're doing of ourselves to pursue these virtues, or these obligations. It's all that which grace does. So there's really a network here, if you will, of spiritual virtues that grace connects. They all work, um, I guess we could say, in concert with one another. You know, uh, I love going to Cleveland Orchestra uh, concerts. I'm looking forward to getting back to those, whether at Severance Hall or out at Blossom um, uh, Music Theater. Is it called that out there? Out at Blossom. We just call it Blossom. You know, there's... The one thing I don't like about going to those concerts is when right before they begin to play, what do they do? Everyone tunes their instruments, right? And that's probably one of the ugliest sounds in, in, in the universe. I mean, it, it's just like, you know, numerous people standing up with their nails and scratching a chalkboard. You know, that's what it sounds like to me. It's like, how in the world is anything beautiful going to come out of that mess? But nothing beautiful comes out unless that mess happens right well you know it's going to be short-lived and then wow from the first chair violinist the first chair woodwind right to the percussionists when they begin to play it it is truly a symphony isn't it it's 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 a, it's a harmony of sound it's a concert of many individuals working together into something that's just beautiful to listen to. Right? That's really what's happening here with these virtues in verse 7. They're all working in concert with one another. The beauty of it is it's only God's grace developing equally each one along the way in our lives. And Paul's just telling the Corinthian believers, look, you're doing great with most of them, and I know you used to do great with all of them, in relationship to letting God's grace develop you, there's just one that you're a little weak on, but I know you're going to get back to it. Because I know since you're growing in grace, you're going to pick it up again. And they did. They did. I just want to rifle through this concert, if you will, the symphony of virtues, uh, this network of what the Spirit of God, these virtues that, that God's Spirit develops in us by His grace, just to be instructive for us. In a number of different ways, uh, at least it was for me, and I hope, I hope it is uh, for us. But just as you abound in everything, and what's the first one in faith? In faith. This is simply a strong trust in the Lord. It stems from the certainty of spiritual security that God has given us by grace in Christ. And faith then robustly swells in confidence and assurance as spiritual growth is nurtured and as it develops. This is faith. So while faith in some contexts is saving faith, and in other passages it includes the body of our doctrine as a whole, here it just simply means confidence in the Lord. There's something about this renewed fellowship that the Corinthian believers have with the Lord Jesus Christ and with God the Father, having set aside their, their sin that has brought about an assurance of their relationship with God and this renewed confidence. 
So within this context, then, it must mean that grace develops in each of us the maturity to trust the Lord to take care of his children when they joyfully and sacrificially give. Paul mentions this virtue. This is not a comprehensive list of spiritual virtues. It's a select list. I believe the Spirit of God directed Paul to choose this one first because it's within a context. And by the way, the first virtue mentioned here has everything to do with what he asks them to do in the last phrase of verse 7, which we'll get to, which we've already read in just a moment. You are growing in your faith. You're growing in your confidence to the Lord. So as he moves forward, adding one instrument at a time, if you can, it's all leading up to asking them to add another one that they're used to but haven't been practicing for some time. He starts with confidence. Say, look, you've seen how the Lord's taking care of you. You've seen how he's forgiven you falling prey to these false ones. You see how he's restored your joy. He's restored your fellowship. He's restored the infrastructure and the progress of the church. You're just, you're just all in. And that's good. Many of you in this room live this confidence. You're growing in Christ-likeness. You've been allowing God's grace to develop in concert these virtues beginning with faith in your own life. You scripturally give, and we could take several hours to have you testify of how God has provided for your needs and even more as you worship with integrity in this way. Growing in your faith. And that's true, isn't it? When you give sacrificially and you give joyfully and sometimes you feel like you can't because you can't afford it, you've seen God take care of you, haven't you? He just does. I could, I could recount story after story as I look across the auditorium of things that you've told me when you worship the Lord in this way with integrity. You followed that Macedonian example and you gave out of your need. You gave out of your poverty. And what did God do? He took care of you. You're still here. And what does that do? You grow in your confidence to him. God's got this. God's going to take care of me. God's going to do this. I'm just going to stay faithful. Reminded of the psalmist's words that God would never suffer his righteous ones to go without bread. He lists a second virtue here of generous people. In faith and in utterance. Well, this is a familiar word to all of you. Not this word, but the original context. This is just the word for the word of God. Right? The word of God. It really means you're growing in your understanding of doctrine. It's used for the word of truth, one author said. The word of righteousness, the word of Christ, the sound word. You have doctrine. So the Corinthians have been growing in their confidence and how God's going to care for them. And coupled with this is their ability to understand and go deeper and wider in their theology. Their understanding of God's word. So grace compels us to grow an understanding of his word and the doctrine contained in it. And this is Paul's admonition to Timothy, isn't it? And Titus, 
in the pastoral epistles. It's God's desire for pastors, then their sheep, to keep diving in and growing an understanding of the ologies, if you will. The doctrinally sound church is set of Paul to have a good spiritual hygiene. They're healthy. They have a great immune system against the viruses of falsehood and the tainted philosophies and the practices of the world infiltrating their lives and often the church as well. Doctrinally sound people ought to be the best evangelists. They ought to excel at seeking redemptive relationships, living Christ before those who need him, and being ready to give an answer for your faith when asked is what grace compels us to be prepared to do. And people of sound doctrine are saints with good spiritual health, good hygiene. They defend the faith within, they proclaim the faith without in redemptive relationships. And according to our context, sound doctrine networks. It networks and works in concert with generosity. Because if it's abounding in the Macedonians and now in the Corinthians, we're going to see how this all blends together as we move forward. So, uh, this is why we encourage you to have your personal Bible study as a priority. This is why we encourage you to avail yourself to the teaching of God's Word in Bible studies and in Bible study hours at 9 o'clock. This is why we encourage you to study the Bible with someone else as a spiritual mentor. This is why we, we lay out for you in the disciple-making pathway this long, narrow piece of paper that's full, right, of resources that systematize the truth of God's word so that you can go deeper in the word together. former pastor of our church for 34 years uh, always used to say it's no wonder that Satan's crosshairs are always on distracting you from your personal devotion time distracting you from learning the Bible and distracting you from learning the Bible together why is it something so fundamentally simple to understand and to do is the thing that we struggle most often with consistency Well, Paul's commending the Corinthian people. They've been doing well with this. So apparently, apparently, though it's always going to take a measure of human discipline, that discipline, underpinned by God's grace, only periodically struggles with consistently, not perpetually. It's not perfectionism. It's far from that. We're all growing in grace. But apparently, he says here, you're abounding in everything. You're abounding in your confidence toward God. You're abounding in your understanding of the word. And you're consistently doing so. That's what the grammar says here. So, well, I'd love to live that life. Well, you can if you know Jesus. Maybe there's some weights, right? Hebrews 12, let us lay aside the weights or the sins that easy beset us and let us run. Be some soul searching you need to do by the Spirit's help. Because God's grace, I'm telling you, for every person that says, yes, I know Jesus, God's grace functions this way. 
It, it compels you to grow deeper in the word personally, collectively, and then together. And in concert with this last strong suggestion that Paul makes in, in verse number seven, apparently confident people who are growing in their knowledge of the word are generous people. They're generous people. There's a third virtue here. Knowledge is added, right? Let me tell you what knowledge is in this context. It's just the ability to apply what you're learning in, in the logos, in the word. It's the ability to apply sound doctrine to living. I think a great cross-reference from the Old Testament to write in the margin of your Bible is really Psalm 19. Right? Psalm 19. As a matter of fact, why don't we flip over there real quick this morning. Psalm chapter 19, a familiar text to uh, those of you that have been in the Lord for any amount of time. You know the first six verses is about natural revelation, God's created order. And the second half of this psalm is about special revelation. It's about the word of God that he's inspired and preserved for us. And there's a number of different synonyms for God's word uh, throughout the book of Psalms, particularly Psalm 119. But here in Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7, and what does the psalmist say here? The law of the Lord is perfect. The word of God is perfect, and it restores the soul. The testimony, another synonym for the word of God of the Lord is sure. And what does it say there? Always making wise the naive. That's the Hebrew word there for simple. The more you grow in the word, in all those ways we've already described, the word of God makes you skilled in the art of living. That's what knowledge is. And this is the intention. The Hebrew verb form there shows a lot of intention. This is its, this is its natural, supernatural, omnipotent ability by grace to, to grow you, being skilled in the art of living. The Macedonians, as you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, were skilled in the art of living. Knowing the word allowed them to escape spiritual naivety. They knew how to be molded into Christ's likeness in contrast to being pressed into the world's mold. And Paul goes on to say to the Corinthians in complimenting them, which they were also marrying the Macedonians' lives, he said, you're pursuing these virtues, and the next phrase here is a qualifier, with all earnestness. And he pulls an athletic term out of his dictionary. In all earnestness. The main verb form in the Greek New Testament is spudazo. Just means passion. The Corinthian people, by God's grace, were, were made to be passionate about faith, utterance and knowledge and these virtues again working in concert with each other they strove to make sure that one virtue was never made expendable while pursuing another they didn't compartmentalize or separate these virtues they're all virtues that God's grace works in growth in concert with one another the Macedonians had a balanced passionate pursuit 
to their personal and church lives that remain the example that remain the example back to the Corinthian believers who had these virtues functional in their own lives. Only the virtue of the act of giving was weaker. Now Paul says, now just work on your giving in concert with these other virtues. He gives another qualifier here. In the love we inspired in you. This is a powerful phrase. This teaches us that the Corinthians had rediscovered the ability to follow the spiritual example they had first learned from Paul when he gave them the gospel and then grew them in their faith. They followed the example of his love in gospel proclamation and in teaching. By the time Paul gets to this final phrase of verse 7, he knows the Spirit of God is working in their hearts and he knows they will hear his admonition that comes right now. So he says, see to it that now you abound in this gracious work also. And what's that? Giving. Giving. And this kind of giving in relationship to this network of virtues functions equally in concert with these other virtues. In other words, Paul's saying here, you, you're not going to be a gracious giver, understand how grace compels us to give to care for the flock and promote the gospel. If you're not going to be growing in your confidence, you're not going to be growing in your confidence if you're not growing in your understanding of the word of God, and you're not going to be able to apply the word of God unless you understand the word of God, so you're going to have no confidence in God, so you're not going to give to God's work. Are you see what I'm saying? You can't separate or extrapolate any one of these, one from the other. It's a body of virtues, not to be torn asunder. All these virtues are easily pursued if grace is compelling the growth. Remember when we said two weeks ago that spirit-filled people don't need to be begged to give? What did we say? What were the Macedonians doing? Paul said it. They were begging to give. Do you remember that? Think about this. If grace is involved, spirit-filled people don't need, don't need to be begged to have faith. They don't need to be begged to have doctrine or to live knowledge or to be passionate or to follow examples of love or even to joyfully give. No pastor in his right mind wants to stand up and beg his people to pursue any of these virtues. Right? No pastor in his right mind wants to do that. Unfortunately, that's been the philosophy of a lot of preachers for a lot of years. But how peaceful it is for the whole flock, right? When God's grace is just the tutor. And God's grace is just doing this. And the spirit of God's governing the growth by God's grace. All these things are working in concert for one another. Now I'm assuming because I know most of you here pretty well. Your confidence in the Lord is growing and your desire to know his word and all those we, just, we described is growing and therefore your ability to be skilled in the art of living is growing as you live the Bible together in your disciple-making relationships, right? I'm assuming you're doing this with passion. I'm assuming you're learning to watch and learn from examples of love in your life. So there's something also I'm easy, it's easy to assume for me. 
with all of you in concert, couple giving right into this too. It's just what you do. It's just how grace operates. It operates in concert with all these virtues together. So he says, see that you abound in this gracious work also. He uses the word abound two times here in strategic locations, doesn't he? Verse 7, chapter 7, uh, verse 7, first line. But just as you also abound in everything, and he says here, abound. Again, again, just putting the energy behind this virtue for them. That they would look at the Macedonian example and follow it. One virtue isn't really talked about more than the other. Each is discussed within its biblical proportion, or should be, in any Bible-believing church, and lived out accordingly. It's just how grace operates. It's just natural. I don't think we're, we're nearing this ease of understanding and discussion on all the virtues, in, including giving. I, I, I guess I could say we are nearing it. Um, growing up here, hey, listen, I, I got here when I was what? How old was I? Mrs. Lawrence, I don't know. She was here when I got here. Was I three, four, when I came to Grace Church? I'm 53. I've been here for 50-ish years, I think. I think. Um, there was a lot of common conversations in the church, pew to pew, aisle to aisle, lobby to lobby. A lot of conversations about confidence in God, and boy, I learned this in class, and boy, that was a great sermon, and 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 as a kid growing up, boy, this was really, really good, and people are passionate about loving each other and caring for each other, but as soon as someone brings up giving, like crickets, right? But where grace operates, discussions about giving are just as natural about discussions of growing in the word, your knowledge of the word of God. Amen. Among believers, there's nothing uncomfortable about that at all. At least there shouldn't be according to the grammar of this text, they're abounding. Include this in the conversation. Include this in the conversation. Right. Well, Paul later says, as a man purposes in his heart, so let him give. We're going to get to that in a few weeks. We'll see what that means in its context when we get there. Sure, it begins a personal matter. But we can't avoid seeing from this last phrase, they gave, right? They gave according to an example, abound in this also that you see in the Macedonians. Pick it up again, that which you used to do. We found out in verse five, remember two weeks ago, that they were to do this by the will of God. So there was a public aspect to giving. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, which I believe is the beginning of the, the collection for the Jerusalem church that they set aside. Paul gives them instruction to make sure that they collect on the first day of the week when they gather for worship. We'll discuss more of that later. This is where I said we wanted to finish this morning at the beginning of verse 8. He says, I'm not speaking this as a command. Now, you've got to get from this concert of virtues that they're abounding in in verse 7, and all of a sudden, it seems like he puts on the brakes here, and he says, but I'm not commanding you to do this. So you really have to understand this phrase in, in light of its context. 
we really have to consider grammatically how verse 7 ends if we're going to understand verse 8, the beginning of verse 8, and the other verses we'll discuss in weeks forward. This last phrase in verse 7 is powerful. We've already discussed. See that you abound in this work also. Well, that's not an imperative. But it's the closest thing to an imperative in the Greek language without being an imperative. For you Greek lovers here, I believe it's a subjunctive coupled with a purpose clause. Basically what Paul's saying here is I don't have to command you on this because this is what God's grace is doing. What a blessing for Paul, right? To have this church having responded to this point and saying, you know what? You're doing all these things already. Hey, by the way, I know you're going to do this thing too, but just don't forget. There's this giving thing. And they do it. They do it. What they were hearing was Paul saying, remember this list of virtues. Recall how they exist by grace in concert with one another. Again, no command is necessary where grace-compelled, spirit-filled believers live out the word of God in their own lives. So again, all these excuses that Christians for a couple millennia of time have given as to why they will grow in the word, confidence in God, love for each other, but no, I just can't give. All those excuses, guess what happens to them? Right? They just disintegrate. There is no excuse why any believer can't give. Especially when you look at the poverty of the Macedonians, which we've already discussed. Paul knew the Corinthian people would respond. So often commands are given in the New Testament where correctives are brought about by God's people being affected by falsehood. and Some changes have to be made. Redirections need to be given in those situations. I mean, that's the way Paul writes, right? He addresses the doctrine first and then offers imperatives and knowledge so that the redirected saints can know how to live the word of God. That's his normal pattern. But those of you that have been around the word for a long time, I believe there's really no main doctrinal dissertations or correctives to any of the Macedonian churches that were ever written. We know three of them, right? The Bereans, the uh, Philippians, and the Thessalonians, right? See how the Bereans are described in Acts 16. These people were word searchers, right? There's no major doctrinal corrective given to the Thessalonians and or the Philippians. These were healthy churches, There's no main, even huge doctrinal dissertation in any one of those two letters from Paul to those two churches. And so Paul, again, here is just by that overall look at the scriptures, I think we can confidently say here, he knew that this is what grace was going to do. He was going to teach them how to give and to do it in concert with these other virtues. He goes on to say, but is proving through the earnestness of others, the Macedonians, 
the sincerity of your love also. And that's just a qualifier. He's just saying that when the Macedonians come your way to collect the offering, look, just prove to them you're walking with God by allowing them to see that all these virtues, including giving, are working in concert with one another. Period. That's it. That's it. So, I'm not speaking this as a command. If you'll indulge me here for five more minutes, I am going to go about three minutes overtime tonight, this morning. But you have the rest of the day off today and tomorrow. So, you'll give me about three minutes. That would be helpful. I don't want to leave you hanging another week on this command issue. I want to look at a little comparison of Old Testament and New Testament giving. In the Old Testament, there was a lot of giving. So, what was required or mandated giving, and some of it was what we call uh, free will offering. The mandated giving for the Jews in the Mosaic economy uh, was a form of a tax, and that tax was called a tithe. Okay? I know there's a lot that's been spoken on in tithe in your church backgrounds, I'm sure. But in the Old Testament Mosaic economy, the tithe was a tax, and a tax was a tithe. When they heard tithe, they heard tax. In April 15th, when you hear tax, you don't think tithe. Right? The Old Testament economy, it's exactly what it was. This tithe of 10% of their income was given annually. It was given to the Levites who ran the country, so to speak. They made sure the civil and ceremonial laws were upheld and enacted. There was another 10% given each year. So now 20% of a Jewish household income. And that portion went to the keeping of the Jewish festival calendar. There was a lot of those. So the planning and the implementation of all those national times of celebration and such cost a lot of money. So there was the 10% tax required. Every third year, there was an additional 10% tax required. This was a civil tax that was designated to help the genuinely poor, the widows and the fatherless children. The Lord's always had a special priority place in his heart for those people groups. And every third year, they gave 30% tax from every household and it was mandated giving this was under the mosaic law so this was a legal mandate they didn't have a choice not to give it that's why we call it mandated giving so over the course of three years i suppose you could say that you're at 23 percent of your annual household income being given to the government the jewish government there was another tax. In addition to that, there was a temple tax. One Jewish historian says that this temple tax, um, some people called it, he called it a profit-sharing tax, was another tax added. And both these taxes would, would bring up their annual household income tax obligation to the Jewish government, the theocracy, 25% of their annual income. The second kind of giving known to the Jewish people in the Old Testament was their own free will offering. This is the money that they gave out of adoration for Jehovah God. It's another whole study in itself. But it was above and beyond their legal tax obligation to the theocracy. Every lover of God would from their own heart demonstrate their adoration for him by free will giving, and this was a form of worship to be sure. So this giving was above the 25%. Jews paid their taxes in a form of a tithe so the government can run properly. This was God's law. 
God establishes human government and the people give to make sure that the laws of the people and the land are kept first and foremost priority. Then they gave more of their own volition out of their love to the Lord. Two kinds of giving. But you know what? We jump into the New Testament. The New Testament had both kinds of giving too. Of course, the New Testament for us begins with the Gospels, but the Gospels are still written in an Old Testament context. So Paul would have known that. He saw Christ and his disciples live underneath that obligation. The religious leaders in Christ's time, who were the Levites in the Old Testament that would run the government that the tax was given to so they could do it, those religious leaders in Christ's time were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The tax system was the same since the law of Moses had been given. Jews were publicly bringing their taxes to the temple. There were a number of trumpet-shaped basins in the temple courtyard, and a household would come and place their taxes, their tithes, in those basins as required. As is most likely to happen in any culture, the tax system could become burdensome and corrupt. And the Levites at the time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, allowed it to become that way. Matthew, the first gospel writer, who was born again, he was a what? He was a Levite. He was the one the Jews would give their taxes to to run the government well. This was his occupation. He was a tax collector. He was part of the Jewish government. It's part of what he did. And he was a well-loved guy before his conversion, wasn't he? Probably not so much. A lot like Zacchaeus. It's an easy, hard no. He was not loved. Now hang with me here. You add to that Roman dominance of the time. The Roman government would add and mandate of the Pharisees and the Sadducees a Roman tax on top of all of the Jewish tax. And severe consequences if it wasn't paid. So you got guys like Matthew and Zacchaeus and others that were part of the Jewish government living underneath a world-dominant government that was placing tax upon tax. And both groups were corrupt people groups. That's a pretty heavy tax burden, isn't it? There's a lot of conflict between the Jews and the Roman Empire over this topic. But Jesus knew that his responsibility was to human government that God had established. And he lived underneath both. Jesus paid his taxes to the Mosaic economy, the theocracy. He still gave his free will offerings. He was God. He was perfect. He was the perfect law keeper. And he was the perfect government supporter in this manner. Remember that one time that the Jewish law leaders the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the political guys, the Herodians, came and they tried to trip him up about who, is, who, is, uh, who he's responsible to, who he's um, loyal to. And they brought up the question of taxes. Right? We'll go through the whole story there in the Gospel of Luke, but what does he say? He knew they were trying to trip him up, right? And he says what? Do what I do. Render unto Caesar's that which is Caesar's, and unto God which is God's. Jesus was paying taxes to both systems. Way above 25% of his blue-collar income as the son of a carpenter. 
And how in the world are we going to pay our taxes? Remember the story with, the, with Peter and the disciples? How in the world are we going to pay this burdensome tax? Why don't you go fishing? Catch a fish. What's in the fish's mouth? The coin they used to pay their taxes. He said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of you. Just be, just be obedient. Obey. I'll never suffer my righteous ones to go without bread. So Jesus lived under the most repressive dual taxation systems maybe in human history. But when we move on into the portion of the New Testament where the Jewish law is no longer in effect, from Acts chapter 2 forward, for the time of the church, giving was still somewhat the same. Of course, it wasn't as complex, but nonetheless difficult. After Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, the ascension of the day, and ascension, the day of Pentecost, the New Testament church was born. When the New Testament church is born, the Old Testament mosaic ceremonial and civil systems is done away with. Could you imagine the heartburn over the Pharisees and the Sadducees in that day? who's no longer receiving 25% tax from born-again Jewish people. That'll cause you some persecution. And it's all because of this Jesus guy. Right? Their way of life had been pulled out from underneath them. They're forced to go find secular work for the first time in their existence because of these Christians. But the Mosaic ceremonial civil law is obliterated. It's gone. Jesus did that. Right? No more need for the law when the perfect law keeper has come and done his job to redeem men from their sin and give men access to God personally through him. So the saved Jew didn't have to pay that any longer. History tells us that some continued to do that and some didn't. tell you folks there's something more oppressive and repressive than a 50 to 60 percent tax burden living underneath roman and jew and domish and that's persecution for your faith when jesus changes your life that's another discussion romans 13 1 to 7 write it down here and we'll wrap up romans chapter 13 you don't need to turn there you can study it on your own time many of you know it latter part verse 7 paul tells the Rome, the roman believers render to all what is due them, human government, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So there you have it. Christians are obligated to pay their taxes, no longer to a theocracy, but to the human government that God's established to be their authority. So we do. That's the mandated giving in our country. It's government of the people, by the people, and for the people. We have a constitutional republic with representative people for the people. Well, from the beginning of our country, we've had the tax system. Whether you agree with it or not, it's become what it's become, and we still pay our taxes. We don't agree, right? We don't agree with what they tax us to pay for. We're not the first ones in the locker room on this, folks. Well, they're not doing it in a representative form of government, which we are in the United States. You know what? There was a lot that the theocracy was supposed to be that it never was when Jesus was alive, and there was a lot that Romanism was supposed to be, and men are always going to be leches and ruin things. 
But it's still God's government. It's still God's. I don't get that. That's somewhat of a mystery to me. I'll let God deal with that and put them up and put them down in his timing. I'm just going to do what Jesus did. What about this free will offering stuff? Well, there's that too. That's New Testament church giving. That's the Macedonian kind of giving. We've described 12 different virtues in verses 1 through 6 about what that looks like, and there's more to come in the rest of chapter 8 and chapter 9. The New Testament doesn't talk about it much, but what it does say is clear, concise, and compelling. What we do know is this grace is motivated, this giving is motivated by grace. It's personal, but it's also corporate. And Christ set the example with his free will offering of himself, described here within the context in verse 9 we've already read. He who was rich became poor in order that you might be rich. And we know that has nothing to do with dollars and cents. Why in the world do you put Christ's example right here in the middle of this context when it has nothing to do with money? Because he knew that the act of giving was spiritual in nature. And it's something that the grace of God compels us to do. And we know the spiritual value for us as we learn by grace how to give is of immense proportion to us personally and collectively. We know from the text, we'll find out later, that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. All right, we'll find out what that means. There's a lot of spontaneity in that word. Your heart's triggered by all that God did for you. How can I not just immediately jump back and give to him? All right, tax collectors, Zacchaeus, and we're done. I went over three minutes. Nursery workers, forgive me, I love you. I... I'm not preaching next Sunday, so you'll get out on time. All right? Zacchaeus, right? Hiding up in a tree. He didn't get up there necessarily just to see Jesus. He got up there to see him and to hide behind the leaves because he was not well-liked in the culture. Tax collector dude. He was a regional tax collector dude. Like the whole region didn't like him. And they didn't get a chance to vote whether he was going to be in office or not. He just was. He's a corrupt guy. Jesus comes by, right? And who did Jesus love to spend time with? The publicans and the sinners, right? He knows he's up there. Hey, G- hey Zach, see, come on down. I'm going to invite myself for grilled cheese and tomato soup at your house. Let's go. So he does. In that conversation, what happens to Zacchaeus? He's born again. And what's the first response of his heart? I'm going to give all that I have to the poor. I'm going to give equal to, I think, mathematically 400-fold back that which I've taken from everybody deceitfully. It's the spontaneity. I just, look at Jesus' spiritual example in verse 9. Let's look at Zacchaeus' practical example. What is a free will offering? It's an offering that is sourced in grace. It's sourced in the person and nature of God. It's spontaneous. It's sincere. It's joyful. And it's sacrificial. And it's never minimal. 
It's never minimal in proportion to what you have, which the rest of these verses we gather together next time to study show us. You just do it because God's grace in Christ just releases your heart to support the people of God and the cause of the gospel of Christ. You just do it. And we'll get more laser focused with this next time we're together. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for giving us strength to go a little bit longer this morning to learn what historians have taught us about Old Testament and New Testament giving from a hermeneutic standpoint. We've got to understand the culture, Lord, if we're going to understand your application of your word. Trust we're doing it wisely. For now, Lord, as we leave, We certainly, in concert, by your grace, understand together as a family these virtues and how they function together, and it includes giving. We joyfully, Lord, want to be taught by your Spirit how to grow in our confidence towards you, how to grow in our understanding of the Word, how to grow in knowledge, how to grow in following loving examples and how to give by your grace teach us to beg to give so long as we stay focused Lord on Bible goals care for the flock and the spread of the gospel make us a more cheerful people Lord today along this line and since we will be We'll know it's all your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.